This morning we're going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Recall we're uh, looking at what are often referred to as the antitheses here in chapter 5. Remember, uh, after giving us what we call the Beatitudes, these blessings for those who are in the kingdom, they describe the people who are part of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus also then said that he wasn't going to do anything to abolish any part of the law till all be fulfilled, and announced himself as the great fulfiller of the law in that way. And then he reminded us in verse 20 of chapter 5, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives us throughout the rest of what we call chapter 5 of Matthew, what are often termed six antitheses. They each begin something like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And in each case that we've seen so far, in the first four, we begin the fifth one today. It's going to take us two weeks to go through this fifth one. Uh, What we've seen so far is that Jesus has given the teaching that is common amongst the scribes and Pharisees, often direct quotes from the Old Testament, But he's also demonstrated in contrasting his teaching with that, that they have failed to clearly teach the Old Testament. And so his, but I say to you, is so far in every case only been really just a a fuller teaching from the Old Testament scriptures that they already had in contradiction to their lifting things out of context and misusing them. And we'll see that he continues to do that in this fifth antithesis today. This uh, antithesis itself is found in verse 38. uh, And in the first part of verse 39, Jesus gives his reaction, his but I say to you part against that. And then he goes on in the last part of verse 39 uh, through this section that covers this teaching into verse 42 with four illustrations of what he means with his teaching that they should really already kind of understand from the Old Testament, right? Well, we're going to look at those four illustrations next week because it all got away from me. (laughs) And and so this turned into a longer message than I intended for this week. So what was supposed to be one message, as frequently happens with me, turned into two, unless unless you want to be here until like this time tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, It's best to take it in two parts. So we're gonna, I'm going to read verses 38 through 42, having hopefully, because I've been gone for a couple of weeks, gotten your minds refreshed on what's going on here. Uh, now we can read the text, hopefully, with the right frame of mind. Beginning in verse 38, we read, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. And then he starts with his examples, what he means. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. That's the fourth example. And we'll look at those next week. But before we go any further, as always, I feel a great need to pray for the Holy Spirit's empowering filling, right? So let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, each of us uh, who know you, we know that we know you because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. 
we know that we could not see or enter the kingdom unless we were first born of the Spirit. We know that we cannot understand spiritual things unless it is your Holy Spirit that is illumining our hearts and minds and enabling us to do so. And so we come humbly before you now in full reliance upon you and your Holy Spirit, asking that you would fill us with your Spirit, Lord, and with understanding so that we might properly understand what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ intended for us to understand today from this passage. We long to hear you speak to us through your word. That is why we are here. Nobody cares what I think. We only care what our Lord Jesus said here, what he thinks. And so help us to get at that together, I pray, and to leave here encouraged in all the ways this teaching should encourage us and perhaps convicted in all the ways this passage should convict us and lead us to repentance. It is our desire, Lord, that as a result of this time together in your word today, we will leave here a little bit more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we might better magnify him in our daily lives. We will give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers, for you alone deserve it. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One pastor, J. David Hoke, once told this story. Late one summer evening in Broken Bow, Nebraska, a weary truck driver pulled his rig into an all-night truck stop. He was tired and he was hungry. The waitress had just served him when three tough-looking, leather-jacketed motorcyclists of the Hell's Angels type decided to give him a hard time. Not only did they verbally abuse him, one grabbed the hamburger off his plate, another took a handful of his french fries, and the third picked up his coffee and began to drink it. How did this trucker respond? How would you respond? Asked David Hoke. Well, this trucker did not respond as one might expect. Instead, he calmly rose, picked up his check, walked to the front of the room, put the check and his money on the cash register, and went out the door. The waitress followed him to put the money in the till and stood watching out the door as the big truck drove away into the night. When she returned, one of the cyclists said to her, Well, he's not much of a man, is he? And she replied, I don't know about that, but he sure isn't much of a truck driver. He just ran over three motorcycles on his way out of the parking lot. (laughs) Now, many of us laugh at that, right? And all of us, no doubt, can easily sympathize with the trucker in that story. In fact, many of us, when we heard that, were thinking, way to go, right? Good on you for doing that. But if that is the case then we need to be sure to take in all that Jesus wants us to learn this morning. Because it could be that the truck driver was right in his first response, rather than in the second one, right? We'll begin, of course, with our Lord's statement of the typical teaching of the Jewish leaders in his day, the scribes and Pharisees that he has in mind from verse 20, remember? He says this in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, once again, we'll find that the Jewish leaders cited the Old Testament teaching. This comes right from the Old Testament. It's repeated several times in the Old Testament. 
But once again, we'll also find that they did so in a way that wrenches that teaching from its proper context. We know that because of the way Jesus responds to it. See, they're, they're, they take scripture out of context. If you go back into Matthew chapter 4 and you look at the temptation of Christ by the devil, he does the same thing. He quotes the Bible to Jesus. Of course, he lifts it out of context and distorts its meaning. And Jesus has to challenge him. Well, he's doing the same thing with the Pharisees. It's not that they're not teaching the Bible. It's that they're selectively teaching the Bible. They're taking things out of context. And we'll see from Jesus' response that it has to be what they're doing here as well. Now, what scriptures are they citing? Well, the primary text from which this quote is taken can be found in Exodus 21, 22 to 25. And I hope you all have your uh, sheets, your handouts, because I have all the scriptures there so that if you want to just listen without having to turn really fast, uh, you can look them up later on your own then. But if you're comfortable flipping through your Bible quickly, then go for it. Uh, You'll get a good sword drill this morning. But in Exodus 21, 22 to 25, we read this. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay the ju- as the judges determine. Now notice here, this is a passage about how judges, Moses being the first one, and then he appointed other judges to help him out, as you recall, and then they instituted civil magistrates and judges in Israel who were to judge cases, right, in accordance with the laws that are given here. So the, pres- the presumption here is that these affairs are going to be brought before judges and adjudicated in accordance with these laws, right? And that's important as we move on. That's why I'm taking time to highlight it. He shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There's your eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And by that point, uh, I'm sure he thought they got the point, right? (laughs) Here's the way you're supposed to do things. Now, by the way, this is just an aside. This is one of these passages that make it clear that abortion is sinful and wrong. In this context, if a woman is harmed, if there's a death, it's to be life for life. Capital punishment for killing an unborn child, right here in this text, is implied. Anyway, moving along here, uh, we need to understand something very important to assess this issue. Um, Because in the ancient world, vengeance was not, uh, and retaliation was usually taken to extremes. And this is one of only a couple of examples in the ancient world of laws that were given in order to restrain vengeance and retaliation. Most people that had their eye knocked out by somebody in those days would probably want to run them through with a sword and kill them, right? The law doesn't allow that. It restrains vengeance. You have to go before judges. They have to apply these principles. You can't just take vengeance into your own hand. You can't take justice into your own hand. And when you do get justice, it has to be equitable. You can't kill somebody for having burned you, right? So it's restraining these things. I think that uh, Kent Hughes is correct when he observes this. The legal principle represents the oldest law in the world, the law of retaliation, technically known as lex talionis, 
lex meaning law and talionis meaning retaliation. Of course, the ancient people that came up with these laws didn't speak Latin. <laughs> uh, this is other people calling it that. The earliest reference to this lex talionis principle actually comes from the Code of, Code of Hammurabi in the second millennium B.C. We're not surprised that there are similar laws in the ancient world in some cases to those we find in, in the Bible, right? Except the Code of Hammurabi, if you really read the whole thing and compare it to the Bible, it's woefully inadequate. <laughs> but, um, but it can be found there. And then he writes, far from being a savage legislation, because it sounds savage when you first read it, it was intrinsically merciful because it limited vengeance. The typical primitive blood feud knew nothing of equity. A small infraction by one tribe against another, for instance, trespassing, was met with a beating, which was returned by homicide, which was then countered by genocide. This lex talionis principle did away with this, at least on paper, right, if they followed the rule. Now, it's important not only to remember that these laws were given in order to restrict the level of retaliation taken by an, an offended party, but also that these commands were given to Moses to use when he himself was judging a particular case and that the judges in Israel were then also to use when judging cases brought before them, a point that I made when we read the passage. It's presumed that you take this before the judges and not take this upon yourself. This is a crucial part of understanding why Jesus says the things he says in this text, in my opinion. We're not surprised, then, to find this principle in the Old Testament law code and, in fact, to be repeated. It's repeated, for example, in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 24, 19 and 20, which says, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth again. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. I don't know. I'm thinking now of these poor um, people like in northern India who would, if they come out of church, sometimes people throw acid in their face because they're Christians. If this law were put into practice and they had to get acid thrown in their face for having done it, they probably wouldn't do it in the first place, right? It's quite the uh, way of preventing certain things from happening if this is followed. So we have here these cases that are to be brought once again, I think, in that passage, presume, presumably before judges, which tells us that these passages are applied to the civil magistrate, and they're not encouraging personal vengeance. It's not if somebody knocks your eye out, you just go knock his eye out. Now, if he knocks your eye out, he pokes your eye out, you go before the judges, and they determine what's to be done. And if you read the whole law, there has to be witnesses. You can't just make the claim the guy did it. You have to have witnesses before you knock the other guy's eye out. There's legal proceedings you have to go through, and that's presupposed also in Leviticus. So if the, if the scribes and Pharisees were citing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth principle as though it applied to personal retaliation by individuals, they were misapplying it. And that seems to be what was happening, given Jesus' response, as we'll see. Otherwise, he wouldn't have a problem with it. 
once again, that this principle was intended for use primarily by the civil judges and magistrates was made even more clear when it was uh, later repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, the last passage we'll look at on this point. Deuteronomy 19, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, giving, giving us the fuller content. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, again, presupposing there will be witnesses when cases are brought before judges, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Imagine if we had that law in our culture. If you lied in court to try to get somebody convicted of murder so they'd get the death penalty, and you were caught, you'd get the death penalty. That's the way it was in ancient Israel. Made people very careful about telling the truth in court, <laughs> right? Uh, so they're, they're to make this inquiry. And he says, in doing this, you, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. In other words, this is supposed to be preventative. It's supposed to set examples that will make people afraid to lie in court. Right? Afraid to commit these sins. Because they know what will happen to them if they do. So this is giving us some of God's thinking about why these laws are here. And why they're not as savage as some people think as they first appear, because they prevent a lot of crimes from happening. He goes on to say, your, your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There's your eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth again. Hand for hand, foot for foot. So we've seen here that the Old Testament references to the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth appear to have been in the context of judgment before the civil magistrate or judges, and in none of these cases was the Old Testament advocating personal vengeance. So, Jesus' citation of the scribes and Pharisees' teaching with no reference to this crucial context shows that it was a distortion of the law. They were just saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they weren't making it clear that this was supposed to be only determined in court by judges and not by yourself. And this helps us to understand Jesus' response in the first part of verse 39, where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, notice that Jesus is countering the Pharisaic teaching with a focus on individual responsibility toward others, which indicates that he was responding to what the scribes and Pharisees had been telling individuals to do, right? Yanking it out of its context that had to do with the court and judging. I mean, after all, if the Pharisees had been referring to civil magistrates when emphasizing this principle, then Jesus would have agreed with them. Because they would have been applying it correctly. The fact that he disagrees with them and begins to talk about individual responsibility to other individual people means that that's what they were doing with this principle, right? And he's correcting that 
largely. They were misapplying this Old Testament principle. At any rate, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning trying to understand better what Jesus meant or did not mean by his statement not to resist an evil person. And first, I want you to notice that Jesus stressed not only that we should not take vengeance when wronged, but that we shouldn't even resist those who wrong us. It's one thing not to take vengeance. It's another thing not to resist when somebody's doing it to you. And defend yourself. Jesus says don't do that either. So not only were the Pharisees lifting this out of context and applying it to individual situations, they were doing it in such a way that encouraged personal vengeance And Jesus said, I say, don't even resist them. Well, that's a tough one to swallow, isn't it? Because that's what we all want to do, typically. Well, we'll see more about what Jesus means as we move on, because there's a particular context in which Jesus is saying this. He's not saying you can't defend yourself ever. I don't believe. And the reason I don't believe that is because I have a whole Bible And I know the whole context of this teaching, as we'll see. Um, I don't think Jesus means here that there's never a time for self-defense. He's talking about a particular type of situation. And I hope to make that clear to you as we move on. But I just want to point out before we move on that in stressing that we should not take vengeance into our own hands, Jesus was once again not teaching anything new. He was simply teaching what the Old Testament already taught. And one key passage for for this point is from Leviticus. Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. And there's a part of this that's quoted out of context a lot by Christians these days who don't apply this love of neighbor principle very well. He says in Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. In other words, if you see your brother caught in sin and you fail to point it out to try to help him, you're hating your brother. Now, we live in a culture that says anytime you point out sin that you're being hateful. But God says to not point out of the sin means you're being hateful. If you really love somebody, you'll risk whatever they'll do to you to help them and try to point out the sin, right? And, uh, but he says, you have to do this with the right heart because in verse 18 he says, you shall not take vengeance. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What he said here is all about not hating, but loving your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? Well, when you see your neighbor's caught in a sin, you'll do what's necessary to help that neighbor, even rebuking that sin, but not with a vengeful or angry heart, but with a loving heart toward that person. That's what this is teaching. In this concept, context of you shall not take vengeance. Now, most of us will immediately recognize that the statement in verse 18, to love your neighbor as yourself... Uh, 
is commonly found in the Bible. As Thomas Constable has observed, in the New Testament, Leviticus 18.19 is quoted more, the, more often than any other verse in the Old Testament. Every time there's an emphasis on loving your neighbor as yourself in the New Testament, it's coming from this text. And remember, Jesus said it's one of the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And the second commandment, the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He was quoting this passage. In fact, later on, the sixth antithesis we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, is a misuse of this very verse. If you look ahead in verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, you don't see the hate your enemy part here in Leviticus, <laughs> right? So we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. So already it's cited by Jesus as in the next antithesis, as we call it, that he gives. It clearly applies to Christians, this love your neighbor as yourself. And when we go back and read that passage in Leviticus, we should make sure we read both verses, 17 and 18, and apply it as it's taught to be applied. But getting back to the issue at hand, another key text on the issue of vengeance is found in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, 35 to 36, which is also cited a couple of times in the New Testament. We'll look at one of those examples. It says in Leviticus 32, beginning in verse 35, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. So God is saying to us all, Vengeance is mine, meaning not yours. It's not your prerogative to take vengeance. It's mine, God's saying. And as I said, as is the case with the text from Leviticus, uh, so also this text was cited in the New Testament in application to Christians. For example, Paul said this in his instruction to the Roman believers in Romans 12, 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, which would be to take vengeance, Right? to retaliate. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, meaning here the wrath of God. Let God decide what's going to happen in his time, right? For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There he's citing Deuteronomy 32.35. This is also cited in Hebrews 10. But uh, at any rate, we can, we can see that the Old Testament clearly taught that we ought not be motivated by a desire for vengeance toward those who might mistreat us, that we shouldn't take vengeance into our own hands. Now, we're not surprised to see that when we see that these passages that talk about this principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are in passages where judges are meeting out these punishments, not individuals. And that prevents us from just going out and taking vengeance, that we have to go before judges and things have to be decided properly. Also gives time for anger to cool down, right? <clears throat> In order to drive the point home a little more strongly, consider also one more Old Testament text about this. And this comes from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. 
Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Here we find that refusing to take vengeance is also a way of showing our trust in God to take care of us and to work justice as he sees fit. When I'm motivated to go out and take vengeance, I'm taking on a prerogative of God, and I'm saying that I don't trust him to do right. I have to take justice into my own hands. That's the implication here. It's, it's an act of unbelief, taking vengeance, and, and of not trusting God and his sovereign will, what he decides, thinking we know better, maybe. As we turn our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's clear that the scribes and Pharisees must have been ignoring these other Old Testament scriptures in their application of the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus felt it was necessary not, not just to say, don't take vengeance and don't repay evil for evil, but don't even resist. And that brings us to the second thing I'd like to point out here. But secondly, for those who have the King James Version in particular, I think it needs to be pointed out that, that its translation of this verse is unfortunate. It's a good translation, but no translation is perfect. And here I think it's not a very helpful translation. Here's the way the King James reads. But I say to you that you resist not evil. That makes it sound like you should never resist evil. But the Greek word here is a masculine word and should be better translated, resist not an evil person or an evil man. So Jesus is not saying that we should never resist evil as such or evil in general. He's saying that we should not resist the evil person who at some particular point is doing evil to us. That's what he's saying. And once again, any particular context that we'll be talking about when we move on. But we know that our Lord Jesus couldn't have meant that we should never resist evil because he did it all the time. And the apostles teach us to do it in the New Testament as well. So they didn't understand Jesus as saying you should never resist evil. But in the context, only certain evil individuals who are doing evil to you in a particular way at a particular time, right? And for a particular reason, as we'll see. But I want to give some examples of our Lord Jesus, and I'll read through these pretty quickly. I'm giving a lot of them, and the reason I'm doing this is I want us to really feel a bit overwhelmed by how clear these things are in the Bible, uh, so that you can see that when I'm making these applications I'm making, I'm not just inventing these things. They're following Jesus' own pattern of life and teaching, and the pattern of the life and teaching of the apostles whom he left behind to give us the scriptures, right, and to teach us how to follow him. Here's three passages, I think, that will suffice to make the point that Jesus regularly resisted evil. In fact, here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's doing it by confronting the Pharisee hypocrisy and misuse of the Bible. That's evil. Jesus is challenging that, right? Here's one example. I said earlier that, remember, the, uh, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he resisted Satan in an evil there. Of course, Satan is the author of it, evil. Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11, we read, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, 
For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. He definitely resisted evil, resisted the evil one, Satan, and he did it with scripture. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Usually the evil that we seek to address, I did it earlier when I mentioned the issue of abortion. That's an evil. I addressed it with scripture. I resisted evil in that moment by doing so. That's what we should all do. We read in Leviticus, if we see someone caught in sin, we're supposed to confront that. That's resisting evil. And we're supposed to do that out of love. Get these examples from Christ. How about Matthew 12, 22 through, 20, through 29? One was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed. That's evil for you right there. Blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David, which is a messianic title. It's a way of asking, could this be the true Messiah? I mean, if he does this. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And that was another name, Beelzebub, for Satan, right, the devil. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, you guys are presuming that Satan is far more stupid than he really is. <laughs> uh, and your argument makes absolutely no sense, right? And then he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because there were Jewish exorcists in those days who claimed to cast out demons. In other words, I could easily turn this argument against you, is the point. Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what they weren't wanting to admit. That Jesus is the Messiah, and he's ushered in the kingdom of God, and that his power over demons is an example of that. They didn't want to accept that. That's why he says this. And then he says, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In other words, he's in some way bound Satan in this event from being able to continue his work through his demonic fellows, right? In other words, he's claiming not only does he not cast out demons through the power of Satan, but that he overpowered Satan in order to do it. He resisted evil powerfully. One more example, Matthew 16, 21 through 23, says this. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. There was a long period of time before Jesus was arrested and killed that he had been telling his disciples that he must be arrested and killed and rise on the third day and that this was the plan of God. And that as the Messiah, he was called to do this. He made it abundantly clear to them. We need to keep that in mind. And that's why Matthew makes sure to tell us that here. So we'll understand Jesus' response to Peter here. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, now after Jesus has been letting them this know this for some time, mind you, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, 
Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And then we see this response from Jesus. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, Jesus is doing what you're supposed to do if you love your neighbor. You're supposed to rebuke their sin. And sometimes too much is given, right? Much is required. Jesus was much harder on the Pharisees, for example, than he was on the woman at the well, right? Uh, Because too much is given, much is required. Well, much, much, much was given to Peter. He says, you're not mindful of the things of God that I've been telling you all this time that must take place, right? In the context. And you're refusing to believe that and you're refusing to let that happen, you're refusing to accept that it must happen, and in doing so, you're siding with the devil. You're going with his plans. That is essentially what Jesus is saying when he says, get thee behind me, Satan. He knows that Peter's not the devil, but he needs for Peter to understand that he's right now acting like it. And so he says so. Of course, we know that Peter repented. He often had what I call foot and mouth disease. Don't you have, sometimes, sometimes I feel like Peter, like sometimes I open my mouth just to change feet, right? And Peter tended to be that way sometimes. And this is one of those examples. Um, but we see here Jesus regularly resisted evil, even in his closest friends. Not just to Satan directly or to demons or maybe to the Pharisees, as we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, but even in his closest friends when need be, out of love for them. We also know that the apostles taught us to resist Satan and evil. And here we're going to briefly consider four passages that make this abundantly clear. This passage is a famous confrontation passage in Galatians 2, 11 through 13, where Paul was lovingly rebuking a brother and not bearing sin because of him and was following the principles taught in Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. We're told in Galatians 2, verse 11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him or I resisted him. It's actually the same word that Jesus used when he says, don't resist the evil one. Well, here, he says, I resisted him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, or claimed, as the context makes clear, to have come from James with his approbation, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Peter was unwittingly undermining the gospel through his actions. And he was doing it publicly. So publicly, Paul confronted him about it. And in doing so, in resisting Peter's evil actions, he was resisting evil. Poor Peter got to be in two examples today, didn't he? (laughs) In Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, we're told to resist evil. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take upon yourself the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or to resist, again, the same word that Jesus had used, to resist in the evil day and having done all to stand. Our, our lives as Christians here are being presented to us as a constant resisting of evil. A daily, continuous resisting of evil for which we need the armor of God or we will be unable to do it. In James 4.7, our departed brother James says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think of Jesus, right, in his temptations. He resisted the devil when he fled from him. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Same word again. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So, when Jesus said, I tell you not to resist an evil person, he was definitely not saying, as you might mistakenly get the idea that he was saying, if you read just the King James and read it out of context, he was not saying that we should never resist evil in general or the spiritual forces of evil. We're supposed to do that all the time. But rather that we should not resist the evil person who wrongs us, and I would argue any particular type of situation. And that is most especially when they wrong us for the sake of our witness to Christ. Because that's what this context has largely been about up to this point. Back up in the context of chapter 5 and read with me what comes before Jesus starts to talk about these challenges to the Pharisaic teaching. Back in verse 10. The end of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's not talking about if I go home tonight and some crackhead breaks in my house and tries to kill me, I defend myself. He's not talking about that, right? Uh, he's talking about in this larger context, those who are in the kingdom should expect persecution. And when it happens, we don't take vengeance. In fact, we don't even resist in that context. I think is what he means here. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. We take vengeance. We're also kind of robbing ourselves of this blessing. Rejoice in being exceedingly glad, for great is reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you think about it, if, if somebody's trying to do evil to you because of your testimony for Christ because of your testimony for the gospel, and you resist them. Jesus says, well, you're missing out on blessing and reward if you do that, if you take it in the context here. We don't think that way enough, and we should. We should be willing to bear the sufferings of Christ. He goes on to say, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, 
we can do that by resisting and taking vengeance, right? How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Why, when we're persecuted for our faith in Christ, do we not even resist that evil? Because we're hoping they'll see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We're hoping that they will be won over by our witness and our testimony and our love for them, even as they abuse us. I think that's the kind of context Jesus has in mind here when he says, don't even resist. Not only don't take vengeance, but don't resist. It's in the context of this kingdom teaching and about our witness for him. And so this isn't to be taken at odds with other passages in the New Testament or the Old that might indicate that, we, that self-defense can be done, right? Or you can at times stand up for your rights, right? We have to have wisdom to understand the situation that we're in, right, when we apply these types of principles, so, for example, if somebody, if I went to the VA and somebody slapped me there because I said I was a Christian or tried to have me thrown out because I was witnessing to another guy in the waiting room, uh, I would just endure it, probably. But if they just decided they were going to mistreat me because they, were, they had nothing to do with my faith, just because they like to mistreat veterans, I'd probably sue them, Right? I'd probably take a stand and stand on my rights. It just depends on the situation. I had that in mind because of dealing with the VA a lot lately. By the way, they've been very good to me up to now. They've even saved my life. So I'm not trying to say bad things about them. As I said before, next week we're going to consider the four illustrations or examples that Jesus gives in order to demonstrate in some concrete ways more clearly what he meant when he said, I tell you not to resist an evil person. What, that, what might that look like? He gives these examples in his culture of what that might look like. For now, we'll simply remember that the primary reason for this principle in this passage is that we should be better witnesses for the gospel, for the kingdom, for Christ. And that's our motivation. I can think of no better way then of ending this teaching than by appealing once more to Jesus' own example this time as it's related by Peter. He got to be in some bad examples. Now he's in a good one, right? Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20 read, we're told, 23, rather, we're told this. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? He's saying, if you get mistreated because you're a jerk, right, you, know, you deserve it, right? But it's, it's a great thing if you, and it's commendable, if because of your witness, your conscience toward God, you endure suffering. He says, so when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And this is the kind of thing Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, resist not the evil. He says, for to this you were called, 
because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Remember, he said, take up your cross and follow follow me. As I like to point out, he wasn't carrying that thing to a picnic. It's about a path of suffering. Peter says, who committed no sin, citing the Old Testament here, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Remember what we read from Proverbs? A person who wants to take vengeance is failing to trust God in his judgment. Jesus is the example of not taking vengeance, but of trusting God. What's Peter say? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's to be our attitude when we suffer for doing good. When we suffer for our witness for Christ, we take it patiently. And we continue to love that person and be a good witness to that person with the hopes that they'll see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven with the hope that they'll embrace Christ as their Savior and Lord as well. May we all endeavor to consistently commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, loving others as we're called to do and trusting in the sovereign God of the universe to do the right thing. Let's pray. Holy Father, it is my hope that I've been able to set Jesus' teaching in the broader biblical context in which we should understand it. And to help my brothers and sisters, I understand this word better. We don't want to be guilty of the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees who wretch scriptures from their context and, and make them mean things they don't mean. We want to see what they really do mean and then, and then live that. Embrace it fully. Even if it's hard for us to hear even if it's hard for us when we're hurting and we want to take vengeance, to trust you. We want to be the kind of people who will do that, who will ref- refuse, not even, who will not even resist, but will completely and totally trust you with our lives. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be more like Christ. So please, Lord, help these lessons to sink deep within our hearts so that when we leave here, We're more capable of resisting evil as we should. We're wiser about how to react to the things that go on us, around us in the world, and things that happen to us. We pray for your wisdom and your grace in this way. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who hasn't yet come to know you as Lord and Savior, it's our prayer that you will do for him or her what you have done for us, that do know you, that you'll open their eyes, that they may see Jesus for who he really is born of the virgin, fully God and fully man in one person who lived a sinless life and died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and rose again on the third day and conquered death on our behalf so that we might, by your grace, receive salvation and forgiveness of sins as a free gift. I pray, Lord, that anyone who has not come to know you today will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus as their Lord and trust in him to save them from their sins. Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do as a result of this message and this prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention. 
We covered a lot of territory today. You are very, very good hearers of the word.